Hello and welcome to Iris for the last day of 2023, Sunday, December 31st, 2023. My name is Trevor and I'm happy to bring you the Sioux City Journal for today. Let's take a look at the five-day forecast to see what we can expect for the Siouxland area and then we will go through what we have in the Sunday digital edition of the paper and then once we do that we will then switch to the Saturday December 31st edition of the paper which I believe is actually published in physical format. So today's five-day forecast. Today it'll be partially we'll get partial sunshine with winds from the northwest 10 to 20 miles per hour and we'll just have a high of 29 degrees. Tonight it'll be clear to partly cloudy winds northwest 6 to 12 miles per hour and a low of 9 degrees. Monday plenty of sunshine winds south southwest 7 to 14 miles per hour high of 34 low of 23. Tuesday mostly sunny winds northwest 8 to 16 miles per hour high of 35 low of 15 degrees. Wednesday, partly sunny, winds northwest 8 to 16 miles per hour, high of 32, low of 12. Thursday, times of clouds and sun, winds southeast 6 to 12 miles per hour, high of 32, low of 22. So it looks like the start of the new year of 2024 will be a cold and chilly one, although not stormy or anything like that, just simply just outright cold and not really getting any well above the freezing point. All right, let's turn to the front page of today's Sioux City Journal. All right, today's front page uh, story is about the Russia-Ukraine war. Headline, Shell Strikes Blast Russian Border City. Subheadline, Attack Follows Moscow's Aerial Bombardment Across Ukraine. Shelling in the center of the Russian border city of Belograd, Saturday, killed 21 people, including three children, local officials reported. A further 110 people were wounded in the strike, said regional governor Vashlav Glatskov, making it one of the deadliest attacks on Russian soil since the start of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine 22 months ago. Russian authorities accused Kiev of carrying out the attack, which took place the day after an 18-hour aerial bombardment across Ukraine killed at least 41 civilians. Images of Belograd on social media showed burning cars and plumes of black smoke rising among damaged buildings as air raid sirens sounded. One strike hit close to a public ice rink in the very heart of the city, which lies 25 miles north of the Ukrainian border and 415 miles south of Moscow. When previous attacks hit the city, they claimed fewer lives and rarely took place in daylight. Russia's defense ministry said it identified the ammunition used in the strike as Czech-made vampire rockets and Ulka missiles fitted with cluster munition warheads. It provided no additional information and the Associated Press was unable to verify its claims. Quote, this crime will not go unpunished, the ministry said in a statement on social media. The Kremlin said Russian President Vladimir Putin was briefed on the situation and the country's health minister, Mikhail Marashko was ordered to join a delegation of medical personnel and rescue workers traveling to Belograd from Moscow. Russian diplomats also called for a meeting of the UN Security Council in connection with the strike. Speaking to Russia's state news agency, Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said Britain and the United States were guilty of encouraging Kyiv to carry out what she described as a terrorist attack. She also placed blame on EU countries who supplied Ukraine with weapons. 
quote, silence in response to the unbridled barbarity of Ukraine's Nazis and their puppeteers from accomplices from civilized democracies will be akin to complicity in their bloody deeds, the ministry said in a statement. Earlier Saturday, Moscow officials reported shooting down 32 Ukrainian drones over the country's Moscow, Bionesk, Oryol, and Kursk regions. They also reported that cross-border shelling killed two other people in Russia. A man died and four other people were wounded when a missile struck a private home in the Belograd region late Friday evening and a nine-year-old was killed in a separate incident in the Bransk region. Cities across, across western Russia have come under regular attack from drones since May, with Russian officials blaming Kyiv. Ukrainian officials never acknowledge responsibility for attacks on Russian territory or the Crimean Peninsula. However, larger aerial strikes against Russia previously followed heavy assaults on Ukrainian cities. Russian drone strikes against Ukraine continued Saturday with the general staff of the Ukrainian Armed Forces reporting that 10 Iranian-made Shahid drones were shot down across Kherson, Kelmominsky, and Milakolov regions. Local officials reported three people were killed by Russian missiles, a 55-year-old man in the Kherson region, a 43-year-old man in Stefhonsk, a town in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region, and a 32-year-old in the Chechenyev region. On Friday, Moscow's forces launched 122 missiles and dozens of drones across Ukraine and on an onslaught described by one Air Force official as the biggest aerial barrage of the war. As well as the 39 deaths, at least 160 people were wounded and an unknown number were buried under the rubble in the assault, which damaged a maternity hospital, apartment blocks, and schools. Western officials and analysts recently warned that Russia limited its cruise missile strikes for months in an apparent effort to build up stockpiles for massive strikes during the winter, hoping to break Ukraine's Ukrainian spirit. Fighting along the front line is largely bogged down by winter weather after Ukraine's summer counteroffensive failed to make a significant breakthrough along the roughly 620-mile line of contact. Russia's ongoing aerial attacks also spark concern for Ukraine's neighbors. Poland's defense forces said Friday that an unknown subject object entered the country's airspace before vanishing off radar, and all indications pointed to it being a Russian missile. Speaking to Russian state news agency RIA Novosti, Russia's top diplomat in Poland, Andrzej Ordash, said Saturday that Moscow would not comment on the event until Warsaw gives the Kremlin evidence of an airspace violation. We will not give any explanations until we are presented with concrete evidence because these accusations are unsubstantiated, he said. All right, let's now turn back to the front page of today's Sunday Sioux City Journal. We look to the next headline, which is about American fast food chains boosting their presence in China. Headline, American fast food chains boost presence in China. There's been no shortage of tough news for China's economy as some of the world's biggest brands consider or take action to shift manufacturing to friendlier shores at a time of unease about security controls, protectionism, and wobbly relations between Beijing and Washington. Count Adidas, Apple, and Samsung among those looking elsewhere. But as a tumultuous 2023 for the Chinese economy comes to a close, there, have, there has been at least one bright spot for Beijing when it comes to foreign investment. American fast food chains have decided a market of 1.4 billion people is simply too delicious to pass up. KFC China's parent company opened its 10,000th restaurant in China in December and aims to have stores within reach of half of China's population by 2026. 
McDonald's is planning to open 3,500 new stores in China over the next four years, and Starbucks invested $220 million in a manufacturing and distribution facility in eastern China, its biggest project outside the United States. This is surely not what Chinese President Xi Jinping had in mind as he made the case to American CEOs about the upside of China's super large market last month while he was in San Francisco for a summit of world leaders. The investments in fast food and other consumer goods, while Washington is curbing exports of computer chips and other advanced technology, don't fit into China's own blueprint for modernizing its economy. Court, as you try to interpret the signals from McDonald's and Starbucks and other chains, says Phil Levy, chief economist at the supply chain management firm Flexport, quote, note what the industries are. These are not high-tech burgers. And while some U.S. companies are increasing investments in the world's second largest economy, overall foreign investment began falling this year. In the July-September quarter, net foreign direct investment in China sank to a deficit of $11.8 billion, the first quarterly deficit since Beijing began publishing data in 1998. As tensions simmer between China and its Western trading partners, many multinational companies are shifting investments to other places, such as Southeast Asia or India, or repatriating their earnings. That has sapped China of a key engine when its economy has yet to fully recover from the disruptions of the pandemic and a property industry crisis that has been a drag on growth. Beijing puts some of the blame on U.S. government policies. Commerce Ministry spokesperson Xu Juting said recently, quote, the U.S. side has repeatedly politicized the economic trade and technology issues and overstretched the concept of security, abused export control measures, and restricted trade and investment in China by its own enterprises, which is forcing enterprises to give up opportunities in the Chinese market and opportunities for win-win cooperation. A survey released in September by the U.S.-China Business Council, which represents American companies in China, suggested that the uncertainty has taken a toll. 43% of its members said China, China's business environment had deteriorated in the past year, and 83% said they were less optimistic about China than they had been three years ago. 21% said they were investing fewer resources in China versus just 10% who are investing more. Surveys of European and Japanese companies have shown similar results. While China's market is gigantic, it's ailing. Unemployment among young Chinese rose to over 20% by June, the last time the government released that data. Housing prices are falling and the stock market is down nearly 15% since the summer. That's left many Chinese feeling nervous about spending. Still, business is bullishness for China as other industries try to de-risk and detangle from Beijing may be a profit-increasing strategy for the fast food industry. Well, we believe there is no better time to simplify our structure given the tremendous opportunity to create increased demand and further benefit from our fastest growing market's long-term potential, McDonald's CEO Chris Kempsinski said as the Chicago-based company announced in November it was increasing its minority 20% ownership of its McDonald's licensed stores in China, Macau, and Hong Kong to 48%. Burgers and lattes don't raise the sorts of friction that more high-tech industries have in the complicated U.S.-China relationship. Those strains have persisted under the presidency of Joe Biden, who took office vowing to do more to counter China's expanding military clout and its menacing of neighbors, to improve the country's treatment of Uyghur and other ethnic minorities, and to crack down on intellectual property theft. Relations hit a low point in February when Biden ordered a Chinese spy balloon that traversed the continental United States to be shot down. Beijing, which claims self-governed Taiwan as its own territory, 
also protested a stopover in the U.S. by the island's president Tsai Ing-wen earlier this year. China answered fresh U.S. controls and exports of advanced computer chips and the technology to make them with limits of its own exports of vital commodities like graphite, gallium, and germanium, all metals used in making semiconductors, solar panels, missiles, and radar. The relationship appears to be stabilizing somewhat as 2023 winds down, highlighted by last month's Biden and Xi meeting outside San Francisco. But since then, Biden's top advisors have said there are no plans to shift the strategy of tightening regulations and blocking U.S.-based high-tech investments in China, citing the need to safeguard national security. All right, let's turn to page A3 of today's paper with the Nation and World section. For election 2020, headline, Prosecutors Reject Claim. Subheadline, Special Counsel's Team Pushes Back Against Immunity for Trump. Special Counsel Jack Smith urged a federal appeals court Saturday to reject former President Donald Trump's claim that he is immune from prosecution, saying the suggestion that he cannot be held to account for crimes in office, quote, threatens the democratic and constitutional foundation of the country. The filing from Smith's team was submitted ahead of arguments next month on the legally untested question of whether a former president can be prosecuted for acts taken while in the White House. Though the matter is now being considered by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, it's likely to become before the Supreme Court, which this month rejected prosecutors' request for a speedy ruling in their favor, holding that Trump can be forced to stand trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The outcome of the dispute is critical for both sides, especially since the case is paused while Trump advances his immunity claims in the appeals court. Prosecutors are hoping a swift judgment rejecting those arguments will restart the case and keep it on track for trial, currently scheduled for March 4th in federal court in Washington. But Trump's lawyers stand to benefit from a protracted appeals process that could significantly delay the case and potentially push it beyond the November election. Trump's lawyers maintain that the appeals court should order the dismissal of the case, arguing that as a former president, he is exempt from prosecution for acts that fell within his official duties as president. Smith's team said no such immunity exists in the Constitution or in case law, and and in any event, the actions that Trump took in his failed efforts to cling to power aren't part of a president's official responsibilities. The four-count indictment charges Trump with conspiring to disrupt the certification in Congress of electoral votes on January 6, 2021, when rioters motivated by his falsehoods about the election results stormed the U.S. Capitol in a violent clash with police. It alleges he participated in a scheme to enlist slates of fake electors in battleground states who would falsely attest Trump won those states and encouraged then-Vice President Mike Pence to thwart the counting of votes. Those actions, prosecutors wrote, fall well outside the president's official duties and are intended solely to help him win re-election. Quote, a president who unlawfully seeks to retain power through criminal means unchecked by potential criminal prosecution could jeopardize both the presidency itself and the very foundations of our democratic system of government. Officials used to f- officials to use fraudulent means to thwart the transfer of power and remain in office, Smith's team wrote. In their brief, prosecutors also said that through the presidency, though the presidency plays a vital role in our constitutional system, so too does the principle of accountability in the event of wrongdoing. All right, we'll now turn to the Saturday, December 30th edition of the Sioux City Journal to get some more news and more local news. 
All right, so now we are looking at the Saturday, December 30th, Sioux City Journal, where the journal looks to the top story of the year of 2023. And I certainly agree, I think this probably is the one that affects Siouxland, Woodbury County, and this wider region the most. Headline, Waiting for a New Jail. Subheadline, Law Enforcement Center Project Plagued by Delays, Comma, Costs Overruns. Woodbury County's new jail, originally scheduled to be finished and housing inmates by this fall, remains under construction with no clear indication as to when the project will be completed. The ongoing problems with the county's law enforcement center, plagued by a series of mishaps, construction delays, and cost overruns, is the journal's number one story of the year, as selected by its editors. Throughout 2023, the project was a hot topic, with a variety of issues coming to light and many people wanting more information on the behind-the-scenes work taking place to complete it. The biggest piece of news came a day before the September 14th deadline for contractors to finish the work. LEC leaders announced the completion date had been pushed back to a proposed April 9th at an additional cost of nearly $1.8 million. Shane Albrecht of the Baker Group, a consultant for the project, said workers needed more time to install 38 missing fire dampers. A compliance officer for Houseman Construction, the Lincoln, Nebraska-based general contractor, was the first to discover the problem. At the beginning of August, Albrecht told the Law Enforcement Center Authority, the joint county-city governing body, that it would take six weeks to order the dampers and six weeks to install them. The goal at the time was to ensure the oversight did not impact the project timeline. With the building nearly completed, the contractors could not easily install the dampers, which are designed to close automatically upon detection of heat to interrupt airflow and restrict the passage of flames. Due to their location within the ventilation system, the installation presented several obstacles. Holes needed to be cut in block walls and precast walls and drywall, ductwork needed to be removed, installation of certain other items could not be completed, and the walls could not be painted, Albrecht said. As of December 5th, all the dampers had been installed and work was continuing in the other on the other areas of the facility that had to be delayed. Quote, the authority GC... GGA and Hausman are continuing to discuss Hausman's previously requested additional time and expense for the stamper work, with which the authority in GGA has expressed their disagreement, according to a news release. The LEC authority in August signed a letter of agreement with an outside law firm, Jody McDougall, of the Fredrickson and Bryan PA, to provide legal services regarding the Law Enforcement Center project. In November, the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors hired John A. Templar Jr. of Whitfield and Eddie Law to represent the county in issues related to the construction of the facility. Both attorneys have been tasked with reviewing the project and have had multiple closed sessions with the boards since, as well as visiting the site. Other news to come out of the project this year revolved around former County Supervisor Rocky DeWitt, who had been the county's representative on the LEC authority. The supervisors initially decided to allow DeWitt to continue to serve on the authority even after he was elected to the Iowa State uh, House of Representatives. But then, eight months later, amid new construction delays, the board voted to replace him with Supervisor Mark Nelson. When the project was delayed, the board decided they wanted a representative who was also an acting supervisor, and Nelson was the only individual on the board who was allowed to sit on the authority due to a requirement that the county representative live outside Sioux City limits. The authority gives an update on the progress at each of their meetings, and every other week Nelson provides the Board of Supervisors with an update. Recently, the authority presented a continuation sheet, which is a form general contractor and project owners use to track the progress of a project. 
The document outlines various aspects of the job and the percentage of work completed. The report shows the project is 98.8% completed with $732,000 worth of work left to be completed as of the end of October. Work such as utilities, concrete paving, landscaping, roofing, carpentry, and furnishing is complete, while other work such as the detention equipment, elevators, mechanicals, earthwork, drywall, flooring, and painting are approximately 90% completed. Counting the other additional expenses, the project costs now stand at nearly $70 million. The new total estimate includes design fees, project management fees, land purchases, bond costs, project change orders, and site preparation. So far, the authority has approved a variety of change orders, resulting in an increase of $2.5 million on the project. While many of the change orders have added costs to the project, others have reduced their, the cost of the project. The Baker Group's contract with the authority was set to expire on October 1st. So far, the LEC authority has paid $1.46 million to Baker Group for their services. On Tuesday, the authority approved the contract extension for $34 million $34,000 a month until the project is complete. The original contract was amended to have the Baker Group fee set at $1.325 million until April 1st as a cost-saving measure. It was then amended again to increase that sum by $138,000 to cover the additional time frame of April 1st through October 1st. In October, the contract was extended for $34,000 a month for the continued services until the facility is complete. In January 2022, Sheehan alerted the board that an additional 18 employees would be needed to operate the new jail, adding roughly $1.3 million in annual costs. Currently, the jail is operating with 65 staff members, including correctional officers and administration. That costs the county an additional $3.34 million each year. The board decided to begin hiring the staff immediately and stagger the hiring until the opening date. Six correctional officers were hired at the beginning of 2022, six more were hired in March and April, with the remaining staff hired in June. In November 2023, the supervisors approved hiring four more correctional officers and purchasing two new x-ray machines for the courtrooms in the new law enforcement center, as well as the courthouse. The 122,000 square foot LEC under construction on the city's northeast side will hold up to 448 inmates. That's nearly double the roughly 234 inmate capacity for the current aging jail, located across the street from the county courthouse. The new LEC also will have separate offices for the county sheriff and attorney, plus five courtrooms and court offices. For years, county officials faced various deficiencies, compliance issues and operations costs, and lack of space in the current jail built in 1987. In March 2020, Woodbury County voters approved a $50.3 million bond with 57% voter approval. With interest, the 20-year bonds could cost between $64 million and $68 million. Construction on the project was originally set to begin in early 2021, but was delayed by the spiraling costs of building materials. In June 2021, the LEC Authority approved a $58.4 million contract to Houseman, which submitted a low bid for the general contractor phase of the project. The original estimate for the main phase was $43 million. The low bid represented a 36% increase in costs. Several citizens, including local contractors and union leaders, had urged the authority to reject the two general contractor bids and put the project on hold in hopes the cost would fall by the time it was rebid. People also spoke out against the use of federal COVID-19 relief funding on the project. So, there you have it, folks. 
The Sioux City Journal's story of 2023, all about the Law Enforcement Center and its ups and downs and and, uh, controversies. All right, let's now turn to page A3 of Saturday's paper, where we look to some local news. Headline, Trump to return to Orpheum Theater for January 13th campaign rally. Former President Donald Trump is returning to the Orpheum Theater for another rally just two days before the Iowa caucuses. The, quote, Commit to Caucus rallies is titled, which kicks off at 6 p.m. on January 13th, will mark Trump's second appearance at the downtown Sioux City Theater at 528 Pierce Street in roughly three months. Doors open at 3 p.m. according to Trump's website. Trump held a campaign event at the Orpheum on October 29th. During that Sunday afternoon rally, he compared challenger Ron DeSantis to a, quote, wounded bird falling from the sky. Quote, he's falling, falling beautifully from the sky. It's a beautiful thing to watch because I got him elected, Trump said of DeSantis, the Florida governor. Trump is also slated to deliver remarks in Cherokee on January 14th at Little Sioux Event Center at 201 Linden Street. That campaign event begins at 4 p.m., doors open at 1 p.m. Trump, who lost the 2016 Iowa caucuses to Senator, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who rebounded to win the nomination and presidency, is leading his primary challengers in Iowa by double digits in polling averages. He was scheduled to make a stop at Dort University on January 5th, but that event has been relocated to the Terrace View Event Center in Sioux Center. According to a statement from the college, quote, the vision of the Trump campaign and Dort were incongruent. The statement said Dort University invites every political candidate in good standing with his or her political party to visit the campus each election cycle. It also noted that Dort maintains a neutral stance on politics and intended the event to be educational in nature and allow students to ask questions of the candidates. Quote, the Trump campaign started the process of lining up a campaign stop but desired a rally format, the statement said. Dort understood that President Trump's visit would not be publicized until the format was finalized after the new year. Ultimately, the vision of the Trump campaign and Dort were incongruent and the event will not take place at the university. All right, let's now turn to briefs. Headline, Sioux City Police Seek Missing Man. The Sioux City Police Department is seeking the public's help in locating a missing man. The department said in a Facebook post Thursday that 20-year-old Dao Deng Ador of Sioux City was last seen Monday in Sergeant Bluff. Dao Deng Ador is an African-American male. He is 5 feet 11 inches tall and weighs 125 pounds. Anyone with information on Dao Deng Ador's whereabouts is asked to call the Sioux City Police Department at 712-279-6440. Headline, Storm Lake Man Pleads Not Guilty to 2006 Homicide. A Storm Lake man who has spent nearly 17 years in mental health treatment has pleaded not guilty to killing his brother and trying to kill his parents. Jose Torvar, 35, entered his written plea Thursday in Buena Vista County District Court to one count of first-degree murder and two counts each of attempted murder and willful injury causing serious injury. A trial date has yet to be set. He is charged with the February 19, 2006 stabbing death of his 21-year-old brother, Miguel Torvar, and the stabbings of his parents, Jose Arturo Torvar and Maria Vela Tovar, at 207 Seneca Street in Storm Lake. Jose Torvar's case had been on hold since January of 2007 when he was found to be mentally incompetent to stand trial. Since then, Tovar, who, has, who was diagnosed with a bipolar type of schizoaffective disorder, was in a state custody receiving treatment, at times regaining competency and lapsing back into incompetency. After reviewing the most recent report from a state psychiatrist, 
A judge on December 18th ruled Tovar's mental competency had been restored and he was able to stay in trial as long as he continued to take his medications. All right, let's now go to local news recap on page A4. Headline, 3% raise proposed for county officials. Compensation board met Thursday to discuss wage increase. The Woodbury County Compensation Board met Thursday to discuss wage increase recommendations for elected officials. The Compensation Board recommended a 3% across-the-board increase for the Woodbury County Supervisors, Auditor Pat Gill, Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Sheriff Chad Sheehan for fiscal, the fiscal year 2025 budget. The recommendation is the lowest in the last few years. The Compensation Board looked at how the county ranks in size for the state and then how the elected officials rank and pay in the state. They also considered inflation and the cost of living. County Compensation Boards annually recommend salaries for each county elected officials. The members are appointed by the elected officials who are barred by state law from setting their own salaries. The members are Rhonda Brokencamp Bridges, Bob Stewart, Doug Phillips, Al Sturgeon, Dan Lind, and Ryan Beardshear. The Compensation Board's hands are tied when it comes to the Sheriff's Compensation recommendation due to the, quote, back the blue, a bill signed by Governor Kim Reynolds in 2022. The bill requires compensation boards to set sheriff salaries based on police chief salaries in cities with comparable populations. For Sheehan, that would be Sioux City Police Chief Rex Mueller. The compensation board said Sheehan's salary is now close to Mueller's salary. For the current budget, fiscal year 2023, the board recommended a 7% increase for the auditor, treasurer, and attorney, a 10% increase for the board of supervisors, and a 22% increase to the sheriff's salary. All the increases were approved. In 2022, the Compensation Board recommended a 31.35% increase for the Sheriff. The Supervisor slashed that to 17.35%. They also recommended a 9% increase for the Auditor and Treasurer, and they received a 4.99% increase. A 13% increase for the Attorney, who received a 7.21% increase, and a 22% increase for the Supervisors, who took a 0% increase. In 2021, the Compensation Board recommended a 2.75% increase across the board for all elected officials. The Comp Board recommendation was also 2.75 in 2020 and 2018, with a more complicated percentage proposal for nine, the nine officials in 2019. The recommendation will go in front of the Board of Supervisors in the coming months. The Board then has the option to approve the increases, increase them or decrease the recommendation by the same percentage for all elected officials. These increases also impact the department's deputies who get a percentage of the increase. Supervisors claim Iowa Code allows the board to separate the supervisor's pay from other elected officials 30 days before approving the compensation board's recommendation. If the board does not separate the others, all elected officials would be reduced by the same percentage as the supervisor pay. The Board of Supervisors has not started the budget review process, but Budget Director Dennis Butler has said it will be more difficult due to law changes this year. Headline, Cone Park to open for season on January 5th. The Cone Park Tubing Hill and Ice Skating Hill Rink will officially open for the season January 5th, according to a statement from the Sioux City Parks and Recreation Department. Mild weather in the days leading up to Christmas delayed the opening of the main tubing hill in Blue Bunny Hill a shorter hill designed for people of all ages. Parks and Recreation would like to thank the community for their patience as we have experienced an unseasonably warm December which delayed the opening day. We cannot wait to welcome everyone to the park for an amazing winter season, the statement said. 
Snow tubing fees are increasing for the first time in the park's history after the city council approved a proposal to raise the mission by $3 for the upcoming season. Tubers will pay $10 or $15 depending on the day of the week. Reduced rates for low-income families will continue to be offered. Tickets can be purchased on Cone Park's website at the Parks and Rec Administrative Office at 550 Expo Center Drive or by calling 712-279-6126. Snow tubes will be provided at the park at 3800 Line Drive. Outside tubes or boards are not allowed. Due to limited capacity and high demand, patrons are asked to purchase their tickets in advance in order to minimize ticket window lines at the park. For a complete list of operating dates, hours, and rates, visit ConeParkSiouxCity.com. Cone Park was awarded the Outstanding Attraction Honor from the Iowa Tourism Bureau and the Travel Federation of Iowa in 2019 during the park's sixth winter season. Last year, the park, which opened for the season on December 21st, recorded record attendance at 29,059 visitors as well as record revenue at $346,000 and $3. All right. The next story is about the Iowa Air National Guard. Headline, unclear how Fort Dodge Air Guard units end will affect 185th. Just how the future relocation and change of mission of a Fort Dodge-based Iowa Air National Guard unit affects the 185th refueling wing in Sioux City won't be known for some time. The only sure thing is that the 133rd Test Squadron's mission is ending in coming years. When that will happen and what becomes of its 100 or so full-time employees and traditional part-time guard members remains to be seen. It's still a long ways out with a lot of uncertainty, said Brigadier General Mark Muckey, a former 185th Wing Commander who is now Deputy Adjunct General of the Iowa Air National Guard, a National Guard Joint Force Headquarters. The 185th currently has the administrative oversight over the Fort Dodge unit and leaders their report to 185th Wing Commander Colonel Sonia Morrison. Whether that existing relationship means 133rd members will be transferred to Sioux City is unknown. But with the past an indicator, they do their best to find a home for everyone, said Senior Master Sergeant Vince DeGroot, 185th Public Affairs Superintendent. DeGroot compared it to the 185th conversion from fighter jets to fuel tankers in 2003. Some of the pilots and crew remained in Sioux City and transitioned to the new air refueling mission. Others transferred to other units to remain with fighter aircraft. Mucky said the expectations are that many of the 133rd members will end up at the 185th in Sioux City or the 132nd Wing in Des Moines. The majority of the positions at the Fort Dodge unit exist in Sioux City and Des Moines, making a likely landing spot for displaced 133rd members. Others with highly specialized training may choose to go elsewhere in order to continue in a similar position. A one-of-a-kind unit, the 133rd Test Squadron, which celebrated its 75th anniversary earlier this year, tests radars, radios, computer systems, and other electronics for the Air Force in addition to performing air traffic control duties. The decision to divest the unit came from Air Force and National Guard leaders in Washington, D.C., not Iowa. Mike Mucky said, and it is part of the Air Force ongoing restructuring to consolidate smaller, geographically isolated units like the 133rd with larger units. As security measures and military installations increase, security costs at smaller bases like the one in Fort Dodge can run nearly as high as those at larger bases. The bottom line to Fort Dodge is the location is complicated to maintain, Mucky said. It's not financially feasible to have these geographically separated units. We've seen the handwriting on the wall for some time. All right, let's now turn to South Sioux City, and we're looking at the business section of Saturday's paper, page A6. 
Headline, South Sioux City Campus Expansion on Track. Northeast $9.8 million projects to be done in 2024. The new CDL truck driving training facility and the expansion of the industrial training building at Northeast Community College's satellite campus in South Sioux City are on track to be complete in 2024. Construction began on the 11,600 square foot CDL training facility late this past summer. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen and Lieutenant Governor Joe Kelly were in attendance at the ceremonial groundbreaking at the end of August. The CDL training facility's driving range for real-world truck driving practice in a controlled setting is expected to open in the next few weeks, Northeast Community College President Leah A. Barrett told the journal this week. The accompanying building should be ready in the summer. The new CDL facility is part of an estimated $9.8 million expansion project at the South Sioux City campus, financed largely by Federal American Rescue Plan Act dollars. The state of Nebraska gave each community college in the state $10 million of American Rescue Plan aid to support workforce development. The CDL training building will offer, among other things, a truck driving simulator so students can practice driving a truck without being on the road, Barrett said. Along with the addition of the CDL training building, Northeast is expanding the South Sioux City campus's adjacent industrial training building. There, new bays for welding are being added, growing the building's footprint by roughly 1,500 square feet. Quote, the investments made here in South Sioux City will help fill the high demand in trucking and welding across our state and enable Northeast Nebraska to sustain and grow a future-ready workforce, Ronnie Ortega, superintendent of South Sioux City Community Schools, said at the groundbreaking in August, according to a statement provided by Northeast. Both the CDL building and the industrial training building are somewhat west of the main campus building at 1001 College Way, across the street from Walmart. Northeast and Wayne State College cooperated in the opening of that building in 2011. Quote, CDL and welding, those are two of the most demanded industries in the Siouxland area, Barrett said. And so we were responding to, you know, feedback from employers and the market data, which we had in reference to the needs of the region. All right. Also kind of continuing with our end of the year theme, page A7 is also part of Sioux City Journal's 2023 year in review. Headline, also making headlines in 2023. Subheadline, Taylor trial, comma, sewer plant rate hikes, comma, caucus stops, head stories, uh, numbers two through 10. So we already knew the number one story was the um, law enforcement center. So here are the other major stories of 2023. The Sioux City Journal today reveals its top 10 stories of 2023 as selected by its editors. Reporter Catalina Yamada details the number one story, the continuing construction delays and cost overruns for the Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center, starting on page A1. Below is a recap of the number two through number 10 stories. Number two, Kim Taylor guilty of voter fraud. Jeremy Taylor resists calls to resign. <coughs> Prosecutors said it was a voter fraud on a scale rarely seen, a coordinated effort to collect hundreds of votes from Sioux City's Vietnamese community for the benefit of one candidate. On November 21st, a federal jury found Kim Taylor guilty of 52 counts of voter fraud for running a scheme in which she tried to stuff the ballot box for her husband, Jeremy Taylor, who ran unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination for a U.S. House seat in the 2020 primary before winning election to the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors that fall. During a six-day trial, government prosecutors presented evidence that during the 2020 primary and general elections, Kim Taylor 
a Vietnam native who, has met, who met her husband while he was teaching there, approached numerous Vietnamese voters with limited English comprehension and filled out and signed election forms and ballots on behalf of them and their English-speaking children. Quote, to have someone vote dozens of times for several people, that is rare, Assistant U.S. Attorney Richard Evans said after the verdict was announced. A sentencing date has not been set. No one testified to seeing Kim Taylor personally sign any of the documents, but her presence in each voter's home when the forms were filled out was the common thread throughout the case. Five voters who had immigrated from Vietnam and speak very little English testified through a translator at trial that Taylor had frequently visited their homes to help them fill out voter registration forms, absentee ballot request forms, and absentee ballots and told them they could complete and sign forms for their children without their consent. Eight young adults, the sons and daughters, and a granddaughter of those five witnesses, who all were born in Sioux City and speak English, each testified they had never given consent for their parents to fill out election forms for them, and also and all were unaware that they had done so. Many of them said they had never voted. In one case, two of the men hadn't lived in Sioux City for several years, yet voter registration forms, absentee requests, and ballots bearing their mother's Sioux City address were filled in their names. Woodbury County election officials became aware of possible voter fraud in September 2020 when two Iowa State University students from Sioux City requested absentee ballots, only to learn that their ballots had already been cast in their name. They were allowed to withdraw those ballots and cast their own, but Woodbury County Auditor Pat Gill, who is the election commissioner, kept the fraudulent ballots. When processing absentee ballots on election night, election workers notified Gill the handwriting on several of them appeared to be similar. After the election, Gill notified the FBI, which launched an investigation. Taylor was indicted and arrested in January. Jeremy Taylor has not been charged, but was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. The case remains under investigation, and prosecutors have not commented on any potential future indictments. Almost immediately after Kim Taylor's verdict, other elected officials and three fellow county board members called for Jeremy Taylor to resign from his county board seat. Labor union representatives and private citizens also called on Taylor to resign. On December 5th, Taylor resigned as the board's vice chair, but said he intends to serve as the remainder of his term representing District 5. His seat will be up for election in 2024. Story number three, wastewater treatment plant controversy. The Sioux City Council, in spite of objections from the business community, approved a residential, commercial, and industrial sewer rate hike this year to help fund a projected $470 million rebuild of the, of the city's aging wastewater treatment plant. City leaders contend the plant at 3100 South Lewis Boulevard poses significant safety issues for staff and has a history of compliance issues from the, with the state. In January 2020, the Iowa Department of Natural Resources filed suit against the city over alleged repeated environmental violations at the plant, which dated back to March of 2012. The city faces fines adding up to millions of dollars. Quote, this is something that we have to do. It's a generational project. It's a once-in-our-lifetime big rate increase, Tom Pingle, the city's utility director in charge of the plant, said during an April 3rd council meeting. Siouxland Chamber of Commerce President Chris McGowan warned council members at their May 1st meeting that they would be jeopardizing their relationship with the business community if they didn't, quote, tap the brakes on the rebuild, which has been referred to as a, quote, generational project. At the time, McGowan handed council members a proposal to form a work group or a committee. A week later, on May 8th, the council voted unanimously in favor of the resolution to form such a committee. The committee was initially slated to have 15 members, but that number grew to 25. 
the council at its August 7th meeting approved a nearly $38 million consulting services agreement with Hazen and Sawyer PC for the wastewater treatment plant facility plant improvements project. The Minneapolis environmental engineering firm will provide design, site survey, and geotechnical investigation, construction administration, and observation, as well as post-construction services for the project in an amount not to exceed $30 million, $37 million. The agreement passed by a vote of 3-1. to one. Mayor Bob Scott, who was initially going to abstain on the matter, cast the lone no vote. The wastewater treatment plant facility plan improvements are intended to be implemented across two phases, with a potential third future growth-driven phase. The city is paying for the wastewater treatment plant project with a combination of funding, including rate increase, American Rescue Plan Act, and American Rescue Plan Act dollars. The city received $40.6 million from A. RPA, a COVID relief package signed by President Biden in March of 2021. Industry saw a 5% sewer rate increase effective July 1st. A 25% increase goes into effect on January 1st, 2024. Rates are slated to jump 20% in fiscal year 2025 and 2026, while the fiscal year 2027, the increase will be 8.5%. Residential commercial rate payers saw an annual rate increase of 20% in the current fiscal year, which began July 1st. Rates for those particular customers will increase 10% in fiscal year 2025 and 3% in fiscal years 2026 and 2027. Headline, uh, the top story number four, presidential candidates flocked to Northwest Iowa. In 2023, Republican presidential candidates were no stranger to Northwest Iowa. With the GOP caucuses set for Monday, January 15th, White House hopefuls arrived early and often to the reddest part of the first in the nation state, and the first venues and formats for their stops weren't entirely what's been done before. While candidates such as former Vice President Mike Pence, who dropped out on October 28th, still made appearances at Pizza Ranch locations, a staple of the Iowa caucus sale cycle, others like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley turned Port Neal Welding Company in Salix, Iowa, into a new place for politicians to pilgrimage to. Quote, we need to change, and I'm now just, I'm just doing my part, Daniel Lee, the owner of Port Neal Welding, said about the bringing DeSantis Haley and North Dakota Governor Doug Bauman, whose candidacy ended on December 4th. For this campaign season, those aspiring to defeat President Joe Biden in the November 5th, 2024 general election have had a new congressional host when they descend on Iowa's 4th District. The 2024 Iowa GOP caucuses are the first for second-term Representative Randy Feenstra of Hull. In fact, even before 2023 started, Feenstra had high-profile Republicans coming to the northeast, northwest corridor of the state. Feenster's 2021 family picnic featured Pence as the keynote speaker prior to him declaring for 2024. The 2022 iteration brought in Haley before she had declared. And 2023, question mark, the DeSantis showed up to speak ahead of his announcing for president. Feenstra also had DeSantis and Haley as guests at his fifth Faith and Family with the Feenstra's event at Dort University in Sioux Center. Texas Pastor Ryan Binky, Binkley and Ohio businessman Vivek Ramaswamy joined as well. One other distinguishing factor for this time out, the leading Republican candidate for chief executive, former President Donald Trump, made one campaign stop to Northwest Iowa in 2023. 
In October, Trump spoke at the Orpheum Theater in Sioux City for about 80 minutes. During this time at the podium, Trump confused Sioux City and Sioux Falls, South Dakota, compared DeSantis to a wounded bird falling from the sky. He contrasted his own ongoing legal saga with that of American gangster Al Capone, described a scenario in which he had encouraged the Lakers player LeBron James to transition genders, and made false claims about the 2020 election. Heading into 2024, Trump, whose next scheduled visit to Northwest Iowa is January 5th in Sioux Center, maintains more than a 20% in Iowa, a lead in Iowa against his next closest competitors. Story number five of 2023. Former Sioux City School Superintendent Paul Gaussman files lawsuit. In January, former Sioux City Superintendent Paul Gaussman filed a lawsuit against the Sioux City Community School District and multiple school board members for alleged violations of open meeting laws. The lawsuit claimed school board members Dan Greenwell, Jane George, Taylor Goodwin, and Bob Michelson violated o- Iowa open meeting laws by holding illegal meetings citing the wrong Iowa code sections in order to avoid notifying Gaussman of the public of their discussions of him in the following board decision to file a complaint against him with the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners. Gaussman led the Sioux City Community School District for 14 years and left the district in June of 2022 for a job as superintendent of the Lincoln, Nebraska Public Schools. Gaussman is seeking the removal of the four school board members from their elected positions as well as monetary damages and attorney's fees. He is also asking the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners to dismiss the complaint. The complaint claims Gaussman attempted to bribe Michaelson and George on November 17, 2021, before their official swearing-in on November 22, 2022. Greenwell claimed it was an attempt to solicit their support to re-elect Perla Alacroin Floroy to board president in the letter sent to the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners. The lawsuit has had a variety of movements throughout the year, including a motion to strike filed by the board members, which was denied by the courts, a response by the board members denying the claims made by Gaussman, stating that Gaussman asked for one of the closed meetings, and a second lawsuit filed by Gaussman due to the board's denial to provide records related to the lawsuit. In August, the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners found probable cause to proceed with the complaint and voted to set a hearing in the case. A trial for Gaussman's civil suit is set to begin January 16th. Number six, area landowners fight to block carbon capture pipelines. Plans to construct two separate carbon capture pipelines through the tri-state area saw a litany of challenges in 2023. One company, Summit Carbon Solutions, had permitting requests denied in North Dakota and South Dakota, two of the five states the $5.5 billion 2,000-mile pipeline would cover. The other navigator, CEO2 Ventures, completely dropped its plan to build a 1,300-mile pipeline through South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Illinois. When making the decision in October, the Omaha-based company cited, quote, an unpredictable nature of the regulatory and government process in South Dakota and Iowa. Regulators in South Dakota deny permitting in September. A number of Iowa politicians from both parties, including Iowa District No. 2 Senator Jeff Taylor, Republican of Sioux Center, push for legislation to severely limit the ability of such companies to use eminent domain for the projects, but noted, but nothing passed both chambers of the Iowa legislature. Following the fall of the Navigator Pipeline, members of the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors celebrated. Summit Carbon Solutions did not drop its project and argued before the Iowa Utility Board that the pipeline, which would capture the CO2 emitted at ethanol plants and send it underground for storage, would stimulate the state's economy. 
quote, we're an agricultural company building an infrastructure project to help the next generation of agriculture, Summit Carbon Solutions CEO Lee Blank said. Jess Manzur, the conservation program coordinator for the Sierra Club Iowa chapter, said such work would put risk in the communities and damage the land. Estimates are Iowa Utilities Board will reach a verdict in early 2024. Story number seven, Wall Lake trucker David Schultz disappears without a trace. David Schultz's missing persons case attracted the attention of locals and online sleuths worldwide. Last month, the 53-year-old Wall Lake trucker and father of 10-year-old twin boys disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Schultz's red Peterbilt semi with white stripes was found the afternoon of November 21st parked in the middle of the northbound lane of County Road N14, not far from where it intersects D15 in northeastern Sac County. The truck was shut off, the lights were off, and the keys were in the ignition. The trailer Schultz rents was loaded with pigs, but he was nowhere to be found on that stretch of paved roadway, which is flanked by cornfields. Sac County Sheriff's deputies found David's wallet and cell phone inside the truck. A towel, cell phone, charger, and pocket knife were found with his red coat on the opposite side of the road. Since Schultz was missing... The United Cajun Navy, a Louisiana-based nonprofit, and volunteers have scoured more than 100,000 acres in and around Sac County. Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure told the Journal on December 14th that he is confident that his office in the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation will eventually solve the case. He said investigators, quote, haven't ruled anything out. Quote, we're going to run this out until we just can't run it anymore, until we can either find out what happened to David or where he's at and bring him home or give some answers, McClure said. Schultz's wife, Sarah, has repeatedly called her husband's disappearance suspicious and said, quote, this is not something David would do. He would never leave. His family is his life. Story number eight, deputy involved shooting near Hornick, comma, multi-victim shooting in rural Sergeant Bluff. Around 7.30 p.m. on Sunday, October 29th, Woodbury County Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to a farm along Old Highway 141. A 72-year-old man had called 911, telling dispatchers his son was shooting at him. After roughly seven hours of crisis negotiation, both the father and the son were dead of gunshot wounds. Walter M. Solzberger, 44, the son, had shot and killed his father, 72-year-old Todd C. Solzberger. During the negotiations, the younger Solzberger told law enforcement that night that there would be no peaceful resolution. When tactical teams approached, he fired at them. Law enforcement returned fire, and Solzberger was killed. It was not the first time... This year, that Woodbury County Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to a grim family crisis that left multiple people wounded or dead of gunshot wounds. Around 6.47 on Friday, February 24th, deputies were dispatched to a home along Buchanan Avenue in rural Sergeant Bluff for a report of shots fired. Two people had placed 911 calls. One caller, believed to be the man who fired the shots, told the dispatcher, quote, people dead, people are dead. A 12-year-old boy at the residence also called 911. Deputies found the boy at the residence and rescued him. They also found two men and a woman, Raymond T. Rogers, 43, and Geraldine E. Jones, 50, and Ashley M. Rogers, all suffering gunshot wounds. Raymond Rogers' wound was self-inflicted. Raymond and Ashley Rogers were estranged spouses. Jones, who suffered multiple gunshot wounds to his hand, chest, and stomach, were pronounced dead at the scene. Both Raymond and Ashley Rogers survived their wounds. Raymond, suffering a gunshot wound under his chin, was hospitalized in Omaha for some time. Woodbury County Sheriff Chad Sehan said it would be a fair characterization to call the incident a murder-attempted suicide. After his release from the hospital, Raymond Rogers was extradited to Woodbury County and charged of first-degree murder, attempted murder, 
first degree burglary and stalking. He has pleaded not guilty. All right, number nine, a big turnover on Sioux City School Board. November 2023 brought new faces to four of the seven Sioux City School District seats. Dan Greenwell won a hotly contested return for his second term on the board. Greenwell served as president of the board for the last two years, but stepped back and instead Jan George stepped up to the presidency. Greenwell, who has clashed with some board members, and administrators during his two years as board president prevailed despite key local businesses and labor groups backing his opponent, Semhar Gebrekidin, the, the city's community inclusivity liaison. Greenwell won 31 of 32 precincts, with Liberty Elementary being the exception. Challengers Trayla Lee, Earl Miller, John Myers, and Lance Emke captured the four open seats with four-year terms. Lee, who was the lead who led the nine-candidate race of four, for four seats with 3,572 votes, uh, and Trayla Lee, 52, works for Four Oaks Family and Children Services. Most of the candidates previously spoke about wanting to focus on teacher recruitment and retention, as well as increasing student achievement and focusing back on the basics of education. Nine candidates ran for four seats for four four-year seats on the school board. Candidates had the option of running for a four-year term or the seat with the unexpired term. After the new members took office, George was elected board president by a 5-2 to two vote and Lee was elected vice president by a 4-3 to three vote. George previously served as the vice president. All right, friends. Well, that's the end of Iris for the Saturday, December 30th and December 31st uh, editions of the Sioux City Journal. This is the last broadcast for Sioux City Journal for 2023. We'll see you next year. Have a wonderful new year. May 2024 bring you nothing but good things. Bye-bye.